Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every $20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at Armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. From autosport.com and autosport magazine, I'm Martin Lee and this is the Autosport Podcast. The centenary year. It's a special year and... What better excuse for a new top 10 series with our chief editor, Kevin Turner, than to focus on Le Mans? Welcome to a brand new series. This will be weekly, and if you love Le Mans, like everybody in this room, if you love looking back and possibly looking forward a little bit as part of this series, uh, then I think you want to tune in every single week to these uh, these podcasts. We'll look at things like the greatest races, the heartbreaks, the cars that never won, and the drivers that could never cross the line first, but uh, we'll reveal the topic for the very first one of this brand new series in a second after we introduce today's guests. First up, Chief Editor, the man behind these lists, our man Kevin Turner. Welcome back to the podcast. Hello. Yes, I'm excited about this. Uh, Basically, when I uh, used to work in a gift shop, uh, it's fair to say that it wasn't the busiest place that I would amuse myself by writing various lists on pieces of paper just off the top of my head, and the and Le Mans lists would have been among them. You finally now get a bigger audience than nobody walking into that shop of a few people listening to this show. I hope, hopefully so. To be fair, I have put rather more thought into the actual list that we've published. So it's all very well starting off and going, yeah, yeah, jotting out 15 names of cars or drivers, but then actually going away and researching and looking up the detail and putting them in and all that. That's... Uh, yeah, that's, that's rather more more work, but um, good fun, hopefully. Well, let's get into it. Our second guest on the podcast, our first one for this new series of shows, is our sports car man, Gary Watkins, who is fresh back from Spa. And, of course, now we can focus entirely on Le Mans, because that's the next time we'll see these cars on track. Firstly, very quickly, how was your weekend, and how was seeing uh, the, uh, the Ferraris close up a little bit on the Toyotas? Excellent. An eventful race for a start but also to see the pace of the Ferraris it's a very complicated race to analyse I make the conclusion I think they've made the conclusion and I think Toyota have made the conclusion that the gap has closed the big question now is how how much further can the gap be closed between now and Le Mans yeah that's a big question but fingers crossed that we're going to see have a race on our hands we saw a big accident not not big but a reasonably big shunt in qualifying and also 
in the race itself because of cold tyres of cars coming out, especially in qualifying when he wasn't even pushing. So couldn't there be a regulations change between now and Le Mans? We've got some weeks. Regulations can move quickly. Or are we locked in to the drivers just having to think, well, these cars are going to be stone cold and hard as nails when we come out? I don't think we're going to see a rule change. I think the FIA and the ACO who run the WEC are not going to budge on this one. Whether that's the right move, that's a big question. I I actually was very concerned about the accidents. There were a few sort of heart-in-the-mouth moments, like when uh, Kobayashi took the lead from his teammate, uh, Brendan Hartley, at the top of Eau Rouge. The closing speeds between Kobayashi, whose tyres were up to heat, he'd pitted a couple of laps before, and Hartley, who was fresh out of the pits. Slightly frightening... Yes, and concerning as well. So for me, I don't think it's the right move because I I believe the environmental gains are at best negligible or possibly in the red because you have a car that's crashed, you ship a a shell in from somewhere else, as Ferrari did, uh, the AF Corsa team, with one of their uh, GTM uh, 488s. How much, how much diesel was used to to drive that car from Italy? You know, to, sorry, to put that car in a truck and uh, drive it from Italy. You know, I just I just don't get I don't get the gains. I get the message that they're trying to send out. I, I have my concerns. Well, now the cars have started up on track. You can probably hear. Yes, we are back at uh, recently. What is our uh, our new favourite place to be and record these podcasts? And that is our friends at Silverstone, very kindly accommodate us so we can all get together and record these things. Kevin, what's the first one of your top tens of a brand new series? Okay, it's quite a big one. It's top ten Le Mans cars. <laughs> you are starting with the big start one. Start with the big one. We're going to start with the big one of cars. And we're going to finish with the big one of drivers, and we'll have some fun in between. Well, they're all fun, but yeah, those are the two. We're going to bookend them with the, the two big pub debates. I guess as it's the first podcast in this new series, we should probably run through some of the the background and the basics of, of how you put the lists together, some of the criteria you use, and sort of how your lists have uh, maybe even evolved over the years as well to like sort of the, the rulemaking, if you like. Since yeah, so the gift shop days, that is. <laughs> since the, yeah. since the gift shop days, yeah. Well, so for the cars one, it's obviously level of success. Uh, so for this particular list, obviously it's going to be focused on Le Mans, but we've had other lists where we, you know, it's a wider remit. Uh, how much they move the game on, so you might not have as many wins, but if you bring in a big innovation, at least one of the cars on this, I would suggest, has got a quite a key innovation. Um, so that can elevate you up the list. Uh, and then I'd like to have my little subjective caveat uh, escape route, which is X Factor. I think, especially with, you know, Le Mans is an evocative race. Sports cars are evocative, I think. Uh, I think they've got to be cool. So there's definitely a side of cool, like, are, are, the, are, are these cars, you know, sort of fever cars, if you like. So there's, there, that, that's, that is a sort of secondary consideration to the other ones I mentioned, but I think it's got to be in there as well. And then there are smaller things like, were they involved in, you know, major events or whatever? When they lost the race, did, it, did they lose it because of something to do with the car or because of something else like a driver error? So, yeah, there's, there's quite a few criteria, but they're probably the main ones, really. Time frame that you're working on? Any, any, any eligible car then? Over that oh, time yeah, frame. Oh, yeah, 1923. So, yeah, yeah 100, 100 years old. Le Mans 100 years old. So, yeah, 100 years worth of uh, uh, of cars to look at. And obviously, there's a, I think the entry's been anything from 20-something up to 60-something. So, you can multiply that over nearly a century of race. Obviously, they haven't had 100 years of racing yet, uh, 100 races yet. But, yeah, that's, a, that's thousands of cars you can have a look at. 
Well, let's kick off the list with something that is quite uh, more recent. What's at number 10 on your list? So number 10 is the Porsche 919 Hybrid. So this is the 2014 to 17 car. Well, really, it's a 15 to 17 car, as I'm sure Gary can tell us uh, in a minute. But yeah, so three wins consecutively, 2015 to 17. You know, if you remember, the 21st century at Le Mans was really, yeah, it's been dominated by Audi up to this point. Okay, I know we've had... Peugeot win and Peugeot will be very quick but in terms of wins Audi have been punching them in and have gone from nowhere to second on the list in a very short space of time really closing on Porsche's total unfortunately Porsche came back and went oh yeah okay well we're gonna we're gonna show show you who's boss and they did and as a sort of a closet Porsche fan I was quite pleased about that they revised the car for 2015 so they had Audi and Toyota beaten in in 15 the Nick Tandy El Bamba Nico Hulkenberg car first and second they were lucky in 2016 when we get to the heartbreaks list 2016 may <laughs> appear somewhere um, but I think Toyota did have Porsche beaten that year but but you've got to finish and the Toyota didn't uh, well it did but it was unclassified because of its last lap so Porsche won that one and then of course in 2017 everyone got very excited about the LMP2s leading when all the big cars hit trouble one of the Porsches managed to catch up and come through and win so to complete the hat trick and then Porsche withdrew so uh, point made so the reason it's on this list is really, I think the LMP1 era we've just had is one of the great sports car eras. The cars were phenomenally fast, very sophisticated. What was the tech? Stuff. Engine and, and hybrid uh, stuff, what was the tech? Oh, they had, well, I mean, Gary can probably talk, talk through better on the tech, but I mean, they had such sophisticated systems. They weren't off-the-shelf things like we've got in uh, LMDH you know, hypercar now. They were bespoke systems and they had all sorts of trick stuff that could basically switch on the hybrid switch off the engine do whatever it wanted without the driver even having to do do you know talk to the drivers it could kind of do it all to really clever stuff very quick cars um and i think the the 919 hybrid is the best of that mega era that we've just had yeah now there was always when we get to number 10 gary there's always cars that you think oh that didn't make the list or that didn't make the list so are you going to argue in or out the 919 i'm going to argue it's in there i would probably argue that it should be higher Not so much higher, but for me, it's the car that reaffirmed Porsche's place in Le Mans history. They'd been out since 98 from the the top class. They came back, second time of asking, they win it, and then they do three in a row. And it was actually a hat-trick of hat-tricks, because not only did they win Le Mans each year... They won the Drivers' Championship and the Manufacturers' Championship in the, in the World Endurance Championship. So uh, it's, it's just a very important car in a very important or great era. For me, you know, everyone's talking about the golden era that's coming. But this, that, I call it the high-tech era that really started with the turbo diesels of Audi and Peugeot racing against each other. And they produced some phenomenal racing. And again, we'll talk about that. Um, in one of our later podcasts but there was some phenomenal racing and yeah Porsche beat Toyota and Audi Um, you know great marks battling it out you know and all spending a lot of money with proper kit you know and they, and they were, you know, they were high-tech rocket ships, you know, twin hybrids at the end, all of them twin hybrids at the end, the, the 919 from the beginning. It had both a front, uh, a front axle MGU and it had a, uh, a turbocharge-driven second hybrid system. So it's very much like a Formula 1 car. 
now? I think the only, like we're talking about golden eras there, I think the, the two things that stand out to me for the, the golden era that's coming, there are already more manufacturers in it. There never felt like there were quite enough cars in that high-tech. Yeah, I completely agree with everything Gary said, but that high-tech, it just felt like it needed a couple more. It was one and short for me, it, and yeah. Nissan came, yeah, but didn't really, well, uh, yeah. didn't really do anything. Top ten worst Le Mans cars. <laughs> I haven't done that one, but that should be. But but the and of course the but the other thing is is privateers, uh, and that never you know we didn't have. I mean, no, we had you know rebellion, but in terms of a, a proper high tech car that was then run by a privateer, we didn't have that. Whereas we are, you know, we've already got that now with, well, uh, with we've, hypercar. We've got garage easts with uh, Glickenhaus. Uh, and of course, Vanwall, and then you know we we now from Spa we have a, a customer LMDH Porsche run by the British Porsche team. I'm I'm going to say that we're not going to see customers running LMHs or LMDHs packing out the grid in the future. I I don't think we're not going back to the 1980s uh, and seeing lots of people running Porsches very competitively. Um, I just I I just think these cars are still complicated well we can see that by the the struggles of uh, the manufacturer factory teams on getting on top of the tech Uh, I just don't think we're going to see that sort of 1980s group C scenario again Okay, well, let's go back then to when there was no hybrid systems at uh, at number 9 yeah, we go quite a long way back with this one what's your ninth place car? So we're, we're sort of ticking off the great Le Mans mark. So number nine is the Ferrari 250 Testarossa. Uh, uh, so its key years was 1958 to 61, although it did evolve quite a lot. That's something that comes up a few times in this list. It did evolve quite a lot during that time, but the bodywork evolved. It got a, a little lip on the rear wing to help with, uh, I mean, it wasn't downforce. It was to stop it taking off. That's, that's where we are in the 50s and 60s. They get disc brakes on it during the course of, I think, 1959. So it does evolve quite a lot during that time. But it, is, you know, it, did, it did win Le Mans uh, three times. Uh, four, if you count the slightly odd 962 four-liter version, which is based on a Testarossa chassis with a big engine plopped in it, um, and I think the Ferrari had to be here. Uh, actually, is it the best one? Is uh, it the best one? Uh, That's uh, my <laughs> question. Yeah, I think it is because I think it's up against proper opposition. So, 1958, when the regulations changed to three liters, really that plays into the hands of Aston Martin, who've always been running three-liter cars and have tended to be outgunned by the bigger engine Jaguars, Ferraris, Maseratis. So, really, I think they should. They have the DBR one. They should be ready to go. And Ferrari beat them with the 250 Testarossa. Uh, Aston got their own back in 59, um, but it was a close run thing. And actually, the Hill Gondomian car got quite close to winning it and preventing the Aston victory. And then after that, the reason that the Ferrari is not higher up this list is because after that, it doesn't really have anyone to beat. Aston Martin, go. There's a privateer DBR one that finishes third in 1960. Maserati have got some real kind of <laughs> blunderbuss cars that they bring in during the early 60s, but they've got no funding. Uh, so that so they're, it's kind of left different Ferraris to race each other, privateer Ferraris, Testarossas, and they have the mid-engine car in there again later on. So that's why it can't go higher up this list. But I don't think that there's a greater Le Mans Ferrari. I think the 250P. I think I had second when I did the Ferrari list. Um, and I think it's because you know it comes in during an era where there are other manufacturers doing it, uh, and it kind of sees them off and three wins from four years, and it wins the World Sports Car Championship in those years as well. I think kind of cements it in number one in the Ferrari list. Yeah, I think it, you, we have to have a Ferrari in the list, and it's difficult to argue for any other Ferrari. 
Kev's been goading me that I want to put the Ferrari 333 SP in there, of course, the 90s car in there. And as much as I love that car, and I'm lucky enough to have seen it race many times, I'm even lucky enough to have a have had a lap of Donington Park in one. Did you? Ooh, who's passenger. driving that? The late Michel Ferte, who sadly died this ah. year, uh, took me around in the Pilot car, which was run by his team, which was called... Uh, strangely bsm i wouldn't want to take the uh, take the mick out of that because it was named after his uh late son and his wife and himself uh but yeah and so that was a great experience but you know that was a great car but i'm i'm not gonna i'm not even when we go for the honorable men- mentions i'm not gonna uh put the free 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 forward there but I am going to big up the next car. <laughs> I, I was just going to say, I think number... Because I've talked to Gary about this one before. Higher, we, higher. We, we both agree that this is a bit of a hidden gem. So number... Well, hidden. Hidden. A, hidden's hidden. a bit much. Well, it's hidden. Forgotten, perhaps. Well, because it's... it's Easily forgotten. Because it's squashed in between the 917 and the 956. But it's a great Porsche with an amazing hit rate at Le Mans. An amazing hit rate everywhere because it actually didn't do many races and there weren't many of them. A great car and it is of course Kevin the the 936 so it actually borrowed quite a lot of the technology that Porsche had developed in the 917 and probably it was probably a more refined package let's be honest and then fed into the 956 yeah so it is the linking car so it's the first turbocharged car to win Le Mans in 1976 I mean I would question that there wasn't much opposition in in 76 but then it makes up for that in 77 78 when you've got proper Renault Alpine A442 I mean really they threw a lot of money at it in 77 and still came up short. I mean, it's partly because it's one of Jackie X's great drives when he switched cars after his, his first car blew up. But partly their own their own flaws, you know, he, he, him pushing them uh, and flying back through the field found out their, their problems. And then finally they did win in, in 78. But even then the Porsches were second and third. 79 they should have won I think I think you know they really were the only cars in town but they broke down Sorry you think the the Porsche should have won Porsche yes. should have 936 yeah, yeah. should have won in 79 and then of course the kind of thing that tops off the 936 story quite nicely I think is I think one of the great Le Mans it's almost a boring race because it's one of the great Le Mans runs so the the Bell X 936 in 1981 which has got the the engine that ends up in the 956 Group C car. And came from an Indy car. It came from a an Indy car. No, fascinating Indy car. engine story as well. Is that the yeah. 2.6 litre? Yeah, so it's the um, yeah the 2.6 litre car in 81. And they have a, a pretty much... The other car does have a few problems, but the, but the lead car pretty much has a flawless run to victory and wins by an absolute mile. So, you know, it's a, it's a three-time three time morning car, 76, 77, 81. It's a bridging between two icons... Uh, and it, it was the and it's uh, it is an innovative car because it it um, it's the first turbocharged car to win. So yeah, you you could argue it. You could make a case of pushing it up the list, but you know we don't want to have Porsches you know filling the list completely. I think the other <laughs> the other well. thing about it is it was sort of I I don't think it cost Porsche a lot of money. Well, because it was, as as you say, it was sort of born of tech from the 917 and it was done concurrently whilst they had the 935 uh, Group 5 project. And it was sort of, Porsche said, oh, you know, why aren't we doing a, a prototype? And they built it because they had all, they had lots of parts in stock. Uh, they had the technology to do it very simply. And it was a car that was repeatedly brought out of the museum and won Le Mans. I mean, 
it was brought out of the museum in 79 and didn't win Le Mans. It was then brought out of the museum again in 81 and did win Le Mans. I suppose the one thing against it that perhaps limits it going any further is two, two of its three wins are against nobody, really. Uh, yeah, 76 and 81, I would say you, you'd have looked at the entry list and go, well, Porsche are going to win. 77 and 78 years, I think, they're two of the great Le Mans years, probably, that, that perhaps get a bit forgotten because everyone says, oh, late 70s aren't very good. But I think that at Le Mans, those two races were mega. Um, yeah, 14 laps was how far they won by in 81, the, the Bell and 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 let's not forget, it could have had a fourth victory because in 1980, the car that finished second... The Yerst car that was called a 908-80 or a 908-J, randomly referred to as both, was actually a 936, but couldn't be called a 936 because Yerst had got the sort of drawings and all the bits for the car out of the back door. So it was called a 908, but it was absolutely a 936. And to paint the pictures for the listeners picture this car is there a famous livery on this car that... Uh, that well, that's would, in its favour as well, isn't they, it? They Martini stripes... Yeah, Martini's pretty cool. And actually, they ran it, it's not a Le Mans, but somewhere they ran it with black with the uh, blue and red, didn't they? I can't remember where they did. Well, I think its very it? first race, it ran in, well, I was going to say carbon, but whatever, it, it ran in yeah. black. But that was without the engine intake, wasn't it? Yes. I think it looked better, it looked more balanced with the engine intake over the driver. I think that was, so yeah, what, I mean, I've got, I mean, I've got models of most of these cars sat at home. Uh, and yeah, the, the 936 is quite a, I think it would be regarded more highly if it just, if it weren't for the two cars from Porsche either side. Right, really. Okay, well, that would make number eight. What makes number seven on your list? So, number seven, in a way, suffers from a similar thing. So, number seven is the Jaguar C type, which is not as famous and as iconic as its successor, the D type, but actually, I think, deserves a place on this list in its own right. So, Jaguar had had a kind of a little bit of a toe in the water exercise in 1950 with XK120s. They then developed the XK120C, which is known as the C type. Uh, which and actually the works cars were pretty special cars, especially by '53. They had all sorts of lightweight gubbins on them and tweaked engines, and yeah, not all C types were created equal. Okay. Let's put it that way. To the point where now, even now in historic racing, you have to be careful as a race organizer to which spec you're you're looking at because they look the same. It's one of those where there's not a lot of uh, external difference, but some of them had drum brakes, some of them had disc brakes, level of tune of the engine, etc. Et right. Okay. So yeah, so it, it comes in 1951. Uh, and yeah, it, it wins the wins the race. Three point four liter straight six against some of the some of the bigger stuff. Two of the cars uh, did break down, but third one of Peters, Walker, and Whitehead did did come through and won by nine laps. They should have won in fifty two. Uh, I'm convinced that the car was good enough as it was by fifty two to win again. But they got a bit freaked out by I think Moss got over to Sterling Moss, their lead driver, not yet a Grand Prix winner, World Championship Grand Prix winner, but a, the lead Jaguar driver got overtaken by Mercedes on the media media and went we've got to have more straight line speed so they rushed through a streamlined body which they didn't test properly and the cars were overheated and broke down and then gets the finish and then Mercedes won a very fortunate you know took a very fortunate victory actually uh, in the closing stages at a speed that the Jaguars wouldn't really have been worried about uh, but they got their act together in 53 uh, and they really they sort of obliterated everyone they finished first second and fourth it's the first Le Mans car uh, Le Mans winner sorry to, to have disc brakes the first to average more than 100 miles an hour distance record was smashed to pieces and it was still good enough in privateer hands the following year to finish fourth so you know three big tries at Le Mans two wins record breaking innovative uh, quite a special car that deserves its own you know deserves to be out of the shadow I think of the D-type and I think you know it's interesting isn't it that Le Mans today 
likes to present itself as a laboratory for new technology. And there it was for Jaguar all those years ago. And so Le Mans has always been that uh, laboratory. You know, Jaguar pioneering uh, disc brakes. Obviously, people had tried disc brakes before. They weren't the first disc brakes. But, uh, you know, they were pioneering disc brakes for introduction into, uh, into their road range. So, you know, I think that's an important part that Le Mans has had a place throughout its history as a sort of automotive proving ground. We talked about this on the pre-war podcast that we did earlier this year, and that was frightening speeds given the technology. So early 1950s, average speed of 105 miles an hour, average speed over the course of the race, given that level of technology and, of course, safety or lack of, I still think is... It's that mind, you go back 60 years, 60, 70 years, and it's putting that in context. These were really quick cars. Oh, I mean, that's a brilliant segue into the next one, actually. There you the, go. A new, that, another mark we haven't brilliant. mentioned so yet. So number six is the Alfa Romeo 8C. Now, the reason it's on the list is because the 2.3-litre open car, but because you've mentioned speed, the other reason that I made it the 8C instead of uh, the 8C family rather than just the 2.3 is that 1938, they had the 2.9 coupe, which I believe is the first Le Mans car to have been timed 150 miles an hour down the mile. So now, of course, you're talking about a car with drum brakes, pre-war drum brakes, so I think probably getting that stopped at the end of the Mulsanne, well, this is decades before we've got the chicanes in as well, uh, would have would have taken some doing. So yeah, absolutely. But yeah, so the so Alfa Romeo, um, the the early thirties are all about Alfa really. The two point three liter supercharged straight eights, um, which are quite closely related to the eight C Monza and that line of Grand Prix cars, and then the Tipo B and P three that we talked about in the pre war podcast. Um, pre war Grand Prix podcast, but yeah, I mean, they just you know, four years in a row 31 to 34. Um, 33 is a famous one, which we'll come to in a later podcast. Um, and uh, yeah, they just they should have won in 1935, but a combination of a little bit of unreliability and uh, an amusing uh, lap chart error by the front running Alfa Romeo when they were chasing the Lagonda. They thought they had the lead and they didn't, and they ran out of time to catch it. So it was the car to have in the first half of the 30s, and I think a squad of them, a squad of the 2.9 litre cars in 1938, you know, there was only one car there against hordes of French cars in 38, and it was, I think it was about 100 miles ahead when it had a tyre blowout, which eventually caused its retirement. Uh, and I also think it's, like, with X Factor, it's, we, we did a piece in the magazine really recently where we picked our favourite Le Mans cars, and I picked the 1938. Uh, Alpha Coupe so it's got the X Factor it's got four wins did it push the game on in terms of technology not sure about that I mean supercharging not sure that you could really claim that the Alpha because a lot of them were supercharged getting supercharged by then um, so I'm not quite sure whether it scores as highly on the innovative uh, score as the Jaguar or the Porsche that we've talked about already. But, you know, four wins is, is, is a, you know, elevates into that top half dozen. I don't think I can really add much to that, <laughs> to be honest. But you yeah. agree with it being in the sort of lower half of the list, number six, about the right place for this? Yeah, although, you know, four in a row, you know. Argued it, up maybe a little bit, could well, be higher. You well, could, couldn't you? Well, we'll find out what's on the list soon. You could argue oh, those down. Oh, great. <laughs> <laughs> we'll take a quick break. And we'll get into the top five. Kev, just a, a word on some of the coverage coming to Autosport magazine and autosport.com over the coming weeks. What are some of the stuff, uh, some of the things you're looking forward to uh, bringing the audience? Uh, so Le Mans related or anything? Yeah, no, Le Mans related. Le Mans yeah, related. Oh, yeah. So we're in the middle, as we record now, we're in the middle of a sequence of Le Mans 100 features by Gary, which is fantastic. So the first one was Toyota, Cadillac, Peugeot, and then we're finishing with Porsche and Ferrari. And it's basically a... 
their stories at Le Mans, bringing it up to date because they're the five manufacturers they're in this year. We're going to do, obviously, we're going to do these top 10 podcasts and there'll be accompanying articles. Obviously, we'll have our big 52-page, or it might be even bigger. I need, mm. to, I need to have a chat to the uh, <laughs> bean counters about that. But a big, a big Le Mans preview supplement, which um, uh, which, which obviously is, is a traditional thing. When do we get that? When's the big Le Mans supplement? So we're moving it back to its traditional slot of 10 days beforehand. So during the pandemic, we moved it to just because so few people were going, we could get away with running it nice you know, on the Thursday of the event. Um, we got a few complaints last year, which we, we quite often have whenever we move it that close. So we're moving it 10 days before, so it'll be the 1st of June issue, I think, which makes Gary's life harder <laughs> and picture getting harder because it means the test day won't have happened yet. But it means that some people have got the supplement to, In go, to go to the race yeah. with. And I think it's a sellout crowd. So hopefully there'll be, I'm sure there'll be tens of thousands of Brits going across there. Hopefully some of them will have our supplement. Big package on the race itself, Gary and James Newbold. We'll be writing the reports, I think, in the magazine. We'll have it obviously live on autosport.com. We'll be doing post-race podcast. Basically, anything you can think of, we're going to be doing. To, the only thing we've not been able to do, which I wanted to do, I wanted to do a separate uh, bookazine-style thing like we did with the Autosport 70th. But um, yeah, there's only so much time, and money, and pages in the world. So perhaps when perhaps when they get to 125, we'll re- revisit that one. Gary, what's a sellout at Le Mans? 300 and something thousand or so? Well, that's actually a good question. I don't know the oh, answer. Oh, there we because, go. We'll um, we'll deliver the answer on a future podcast. Yeah, I think it does begin with a three, doesn't well, it? Well, I would think so because normally they announce a crowd in the very high 200 and something thousand. You know, I'm, I've have re- have a recollection of 290 thousand. I don't know the answer to that. I presume that's a multi-day crowd, not yes. just a one-day crowd. Yes, yes. You know, for all its eight and a half miles, of course, a lot of the uh, a lot of the track you can't spectate at. But then it probably that crowd figure, I should imagine, counts people who've paid, and there are a lot of people watching who haven't paid because you know there are other ways to <laughs> access the circuit. Well, oh, your garden might back on. Well, maybe. Or whatever. It's, it's, it's funny you mention that because Le Mans was one of the first circuits to be a closed circuit where you could then charge for tickets. So was it really? Because it was, obviously it wasn't the same layout. This is yeah. pre-24 hours layout. But when the early Grand Prix was happening, 1906 French Grand Prix, it was on a circular route instead of the old city-to-city routes where people would just not see. They could just rock out and stand where they liked on the route. So it was, you know, Le Mans got a lot of history in motorsport beyond just the 24 hours. Well, if you'd like the supplement through your letterbox in plenty of time, you've still got time to subscribe to autosport.com slash plus. That's the URL to go to on the website, autosport.com slash plus. You get your first 30 days free if you want to try the access and you can either do monthly or yearly and you've got a couple of weeks to get round to doing that to ensure that you get Autosport magazine delivered through your letterbox with all of the Le Mans goodness inside with plenty of time. We'll be back in just a second. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry. Sorry. We're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No. Lucky Land Casino. With cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. 
Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. All right, welcome back to our first of our new top 10 series. Uh, it's all Le Mans based uh, in centenary year. You won't be surprised to hear. We're talking cars. Kev, what's number five? So number five is the Audi R8. So I'm going to have to get Gary to help me out with this one because I think he was the man on the scene for all of these. But I really struggle with the R8 because I, it just doesn't do it for me. So X Factor wise, it just uh, I, I, too dominant, with, too dominant. I, possibly, I think. I think also it coincides with a period where it was a bit disappointing. So the mid to late nineties in sports car and GT racing were great. You know, we had the FI GT Championship out of BPR. Everyone got involved. It, I mean, it got too good too quickly. Actually, it's probably what. Uh, what, what you could say and so in 98, 99 you've got you know you've got Toyota you've got Porsche you've got BMW obviously Audi coming in 99 all these manufacturers uh, involved and then they all leave or most of them leave and now Audi are left I mean in a way you feel a bit sorry for them because they've you know once they got through the R8R and the R8C which were kind of okay they, they nailed it with the R8 and then they didn't really have anyone to beat um, so they, I don't know. There was a Cadillac program, and panels, and, and Chrysler, and but none of them were like and you, MG and Bentley. I mean, it, well, they didn't beat Bentley, but that's the Bentley thing I struggle with as well because the, they did was, beat the, Bentley the, 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 for the, two the, years. For two years, but then when when the VW Audi group decided that the effort was going to the Bentley brand, the Bentley one. So even that doesn't feel like a genuine fight for me. On the other hand. Yeah, I mean, what five, five Le Mans wins, dominant as a factory car, two privateer wins, which we always like. Privateer wins are quite good fun. Are and they so, privateers? Mm. Well, mm. <laughs> well, that's that's that's. Perhaps I don't one count them you, as privateer wins. Are they? They're obviously not full factory wins. You no, know, we're talking about um, the uh, well, two thousand and four well, win with Team Go and the oh five win with Champion Racing from North America. Perhaps underdog wins then, in the sense of oh five, the Pescarolo was quicker. Yeah, you know, the Pescarolo should have should have beaten the Audis, and so they yeah they won that one as well. So you can't. I don't. When I looked at it, I thought. I think at the out of the R8 probably also deserves some credit for turning Le Mans into a flat out sprint race. You know, it's it's one of the key cars on that journey of I'm just driving around managing the car too. They are absolutely flat chat these days, and the R8 is a key car in that. So it does sort of change the game. Five wins. How could I not put it in the list? So it has to be high in the it list because of, of five wins. Yeah, and it, and and of course it was restricted. The you know restricted, and of course it starts an enormous Audi dynasty. And I almost put the R10 in instead because. It, you know, the turbo diesel technology and starting the high tech era that, that Gary mentioned earlier. But I thought in the end, five w- five wins, it would be ridiculous to have a car that won five times not in the list. What about some famous drivers that people might recognise their names of driving? It's part of the Tom Christensen uh, mystique, isn't it? Of course it is, because he had so many wins in the car. You know, three in a row uh, with Frank Beeler and Emmanuel Piro in uh, 2001 and 02. Uh, but then we shouldn't forget his 04 win, which many people regard um, as as the greatest of his drives because he was instrumental in sort of turning Team Go into a team that was capable of uh, winning Le Mans. I think him and uh, Joe Hausner, um, the engineer from uh, Audi Sport, came in and, uh, yeah, just sort of made it a team that could win Le Mans. Whereas earlier in the season, I remember at Monza... Um, for uh, an LMES race, it sort of I thought, well, that's that's not a team that's going to win Le Mans. But I think Tom 
you know, pushed and, yeah, basically got it into a point where it was capable of uh, winning Le Mans. Into the top four. I'm, I want to make another point about the R8. Oh, go on. And it, and it has a, a, a massive badge of honour. It was so good that they had to change the rules. Remember, the R8 came in, well, is the actually the R8C, the, sorry, the R8R in 99, because it had gearbox problems, uh, making the gearbox last, they came up with a quick change solution and, you know, they could change the gearbox. I think the record was five minutes or four minutes, something, so they could c- change the complete rear end of the car. So that's gearbox uh, and and suspension. And it was a c- key component of the R8 success, not always because it was the gearbox failing, but it, I remember on one occasion uh, a puncture, so the suspension was damaged, Rather than changing a corner, which will take you half an hour, you know, unscrewing and screwing on individual wishbones and stuff, six minutes to change the complete rear end, off you go. Um, And that was banned because Audi, you know, moved the goalposts with that. And I think that's a real badge of honour for a car. And also I think it was important in safety developments uh, in prototype racing with sort of uh, Formula One style head restraints. So I think that's that's another plus point. And we should never forget about safety, of course. Yeah, and so it's, for me, the R8, more than any car on this list, is it's kind of, it's, it's, head, it's head over heart. Oh, I'm never, the R8 is never going to make it into my favourite list of racing cars, but you, like, it, you, you can't deny its place in, well, not just Le Mans history, but motorsport history. I know where you're coming from. So, so the Audi R8 might have had some variants, but tell us about how you've wrapped up uh, number four into being a bit of an all-encompassing wrapper. Oh, can, can I go boo-hiss at this oh, point? You can do whatever you want. Yeah, yeah. I'm sorry, I've enormously cheated at number four, <laughs> it's fair to say. Big time. Um... So, but but to be fair, most people do regard the GT program as one thing, and they quite often call all four cars the GT40. So number four is the four GT40. So this encompasses the 4.2 litre and 4.7 litre and 4.9 litre Mark 1s, the 7 litre Mark 2s, which I do believe share GT40 chassis numbers, and the Mark 4, which was a 7 litre, which I think had separate chassis numbers. So that's probably the one, if you were going to lose one, you'd lose. But it was very much part of that, you know, part of that program. Uh, and actually, I, I would say the Mark IV's existence and presence at Le Mans is largely down to the fact that the 330 P4 Ferrari sorted out the Mark IIs at Daytona in 67. And Ford went, hmm, we're not sure that the Mark II, even in its modified form, is going to be enough. So I think so for Le Mans win 66 to 69. So that, and, and each, each one of those wins is sort of quite famous for a different reason. So 66, of course, is now famous because of the Ford versus Ferrari film and the contrived photo finish 67 is the AJ, AJ Foyt Dan Gurney year where actually thanks to a multi-car crash and various other issues Ford almost lose to the 330 P4 but Gurney and Foyt keep their heads the car runs smoothly they smash the distance record and the rules get changed because sports car racing is getting too fast that rule change did not work as we will come to shortly 68 is the strikes delayed the race till, till September. Very wet race. Pedro Rodriguez, Lucien Bianchi win in the Golf GT40 against the Works Porsches and win the World Sports Car Championship. And then 69 is the race that the GT40 really, really, really shouldn't win. It's miles off the pace uh, in qualifying. I need to check how much it was. I think it was something ludicrous like 14.6 seconds off pole. <laughs> now, okay, you could say, well, what, what, what does qualifying matter in the 24 hours? But it usually gives you a gauge of who's roughly in the ballpark. 
So even if you say, right, well, the 917s are going to retire, which is what everyone expected anyway, there was a phalanx of 908s that, that should have done the job. Uh, but the one, the one that survived didn't really have the drivers in it that, that Porsche needed. And Jackie X in the GT40, I think, was always going to beat Hans Hermann in the 908. I mean, he thought the race had finished up early and he contrived to be ahead. He had to do it again. I think they could probably have done that for the next half an hour and X would have made sure that he was in the lead. Yeah, because at the time, he was what, arguably the second or third best driver in the world. Uh, and Hans Hermann was a, a good sports car driver, but he wasn't... You know, and wasn't, not in his first flash of youth. No, that's true. A veteran, really. So 69 kind of elevates the car a bit more because it's such a ridiculous... It's a famous, you know, right from the very start when X walked across to the car to to you know to protest against the Le Mans style start and then he gets held up by the John Wolf Norman Seven crash in the first lap so he's miles but anyway so it's it's a great story that we'll probably get to in a future list uh, and the GT4 is just an iconic car isn't it if you think if you think of famous Le Mans cars I think a lot of people would think Golf liveried GT40 it's not higher I guess partly because actually it takes a long time for the project to get going and succeed after their first two efforts they hadn't got a car to the finish you know, they hurried the Mark 2s out in 65 and they were very fast but broke so uh, and and they it was a sledgehammer to crack a nut really in the end um, but yeah had, had, it's an iconic car four wins even if it's across three different types of car type of boo hiss <laughs> which now, I guess then. is Gary's, uh, Gary's <laughs> issue yeah I don't think we can yeah I mean, the only the only thing I would say to Kev is that possibly we should have, you know, if we if we did separate them, would we have to have a GT40 and a Mark II in? No, sorry, the Mark IV, Mark IV, a Mark IV well, what, and the GT40. Well, see, why do you think I put them together? Yeah. So, it's, it's so just, really, you you've <laughs> this is a big a, cheat. This is yeah, you, it's I a think cheat, you would you would probably you would you'd probably have to put. I think the Mark One would have to be there. Two wins, even though it's got the most problematic story. But it's the two wins and it's involved in that famous 69 race. Would the one win in 67 be enough to get the Mark IV on on its own? There are a lot of good one-off. I mean, the the the, the W you know the WSC Yost 95 car, uh, the one in 96 and 97. I don't know what I never know what car what to call that. It's been called all sorts of different That's things. WSC 95. Yeah. Um, so uh, that as a two-time winner and in really cool circumstances for me would get in before the Mark IV on its own. So I'm doing the Mark IV a favour by lumping it in with this. Yeah, I see. I see what you mean. I see. So you think the Mark II or the Mark IV wouldn't necessarily... Well, Mark II probably makes it for for 66 and the iconic first win, the finish. I don't know whether it would... Like all the like all the big stuff broke down. The only cars running at the yeah, fourth, fifth, and sixth were little were little Porsches, uh, and the contrived finish a bit unsatisfactory. Uh, on the other hand, you could say sixty six and sixty seven are two of the greatest Le Mans fields of all time in terms of the quality of the drives and things. So uh, you can see why I lump them all in together to avoid this problem in the article. <laughs> we're gonna we're gonna I'm gonna return to this subject when we talk about honourable mentions. Okay, again. number what's at number three into the top three? So number three. Now this is contentious. Three Porsche nine one seven. For me, and I know that there are at least two people in this room that disagree with this, but I'm pretty adamant it is the greatest competition car of all time. But I lost that debate when we did this at the uh, for Allsport 70, so we won't go back there. So uh, I think it, it changes the it changes the game quite significantly, both in terms of it's a massive loophole. It's one of the great loopholes. You know, we've we've put this thing in the seven litre V8s. Uh, at Le Mans are too fast. We're going to put this three litre limit in for sports prototypes, but we want to have some cars 
you know, some things like the Mark 1 GT40s, you know, five litre cars, we'll let those in. So, but you've got to have 25 of them. Actually, originally it was 50 and they cut down to 25. And Porsche went, well, fine, well, we're going to build 25 proper sports prototypes with a four and a half litre engine to start with. And they obliterated the Ford lap records in 69 and obviously only got faster from there. And the development of the R17, I think, is is the early days of aerodynamic understanding. They're into a realm where they Or do. misunderstanding. Well, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> they go from one to the other. You know, you look at if you look at the front uh, front head-on of the 1969 car versus the 71 long tail, you can see it's wider, it's lower. One looks like a more modern racing car and one looks like a 60s racing car. And that's it, it's for me, it's that... The 917, obviously, they did all sorts of experiments with uh, special materials and drilling the brake discs and all sorts of stuff. So it ticks the innovation box for me. It's the it's significant because it's the first car that wins Le Mans for Porsche, 1970, incredibly wet race, about the slowest 917 ever produced that won the race, but they, it won it. Uh, then it sets a distance record in 1971, the Martini car that stands until 2010, I think, is the record now. Um so you know we're talking 240 miles an hour down the mole sign with a long tail car so it's got it's for me it oozes x factor they it appears in martini and golf liveries what more could you possibly want <laughs> well and there are all those random uh liveries like the pink pink yeah. as much as i like the car that we put number one but i won't reveal it yet the 917 for its short history it just made its mark, didn't it? It's an evocative c- car, and I think the McQueen movie, Le Mans, has a part in has, has a part in that, and just sort of bringing that car to to a, a wider audience, if you like. Well, how many people think a Golf Number Seven won Le Mans? Well, that's a good point. Yes. <laughs> that didn't I, I, I think someone. I, I think you someone walked into the office once with uh, with something that was suggesting that, and you and you picked them up on it. <laughs> Sorry, they walked out a t shirt. No, no. Yeah. Strangely, it was my t shirt. Yeah. Which had a Golf 917 on it. It didn't specifically say that that was the winning car, but oh, okay. there was an implication. And Stuart Codling, who is now, I thought it uh, was Henry, the, the late Henry Hope Frost. Uh, I, well, I think they probably both had oh, right, it, but, okay. but, but Stuart is obviously still around to continue that joke. And uh, yeah, so that that no, that's that is true. Wow. And, and it's also ticks Gary's box of effectively it's outlawed. 917 actually doesn't get beaten. I think had had you got had you had Penske run a, a, a squad of Ferraris during five one two M's during nineteen seventy one. It's a di- I think it's probably a different story, but actually it was only the one car and it had all sorts. But if of Penske problems. had run a squad of nine seventeens at the time, it might have been a different story as well. Well, that's probably fair. Yeah, you would. Yeah, well, Porsche ended up picking Penske well, exactly. over uh, John Wire in the end. Um, so for the Canon program it gets, for the Canon yeah. program, yeah. So it gets it gets banned. Uh, it, to be fair, those rules were coming for a while. They've moved back to proper three liters, but so it leaves a distance record and lap records that you know it takes decades to, to, to or certainly a lot you know long time to be approached. And it, as, as Gary says, it really makes its mark on the yeah iconic get get does get used too often, but the R one seven just is. Uh, how do you want to play number two and number one? Because Le Mans fans listening to the podcast will. We'll, we've worked out what number one is um, and sometimes we deliver the two together and then sometimes we just do number two what's the best way how do you want to do this one I'm not sure whether there's a debate between these top two there's no there? debate between them it depends what you want to deliver them no the car we've just talked about the 917 and the car that we're going to put number one are vying it out for the number one spot. Okay. I wouldn't put wow, okay. your car for number two. So we, we better, we're confusing the listeners <laughs> yeah, here. Right. Yeah. What's yeah. uh, yeah. Kev, name, name number one and number two. So number two yep. is the Jaguar D-Type, yep. 
Three Le Mans wins, 55 to 57. Number one, I mean, I'm sure people will have guessed this, Porsche 956-962, which I think we can lump together. I'm hoping Gary can... Oh, I, I agree uh, with that. Um, so that's so I've put the key years as 82 to 94. Uh, there is actually a bit of a postscript to even that, amazingly. Um, but seven wins, so 82 to 87, and then the one that's... I don't think makes a really diff- big difference to this position, and I think it was a bit of a cheat anyway. <laughs> 1990, well, not a cheat, but it was a, a very classic loophole moment again in 1994. I think we'd, it would still be number one or number two if you're if you're a 917 fan without the 94 yeah, victory. Agree, agree. And, and so, Gary, would you have put what is number two on Kevin's list, the Jaguar D-Type, number three, and yeah. had the two Porsches, okay. number one and yeah, two. No, well, so let's talk about the D-type first of all okay, then. Okay, so, yeah, I mean, I, I'm very interested to hear Gary say that because, as you see, I'm a 917 fan. The reason I put the Jaguar ahead, I put the Jaguar between the two Porsches, partly because it is... Because you didn't want two Porsches. Well, there is a certain two. artistic license. <laughs> but also, the, the, the D-type is a Le Mans car. Both of the, 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 the Porsches are great sports cars, but the Jaguar D-type, probably more than almost any other car on this list... Is is a designed to win yeah. Le Mans, and it you did d- its job, and it did its job, and it's it is, uh, I think it's probably the car that typifies 1950 sports cars, even though it didn't actually win a championship, uh, and it only won one other major world championship race outside of Le Mans, but um, yeah, it finished second in '54 in its debut when it was it was really outgunned by the you know. Big four seven five plus Ferrari, and actually a great drive by Gonzalez. I don't think that I'm not sure there are many people that could have manhandled that car, and he was quite a lot quicker than Maurice Trantini or his co-driver in that in that car. Um, and then of course it wins fifty five. If you were being harsh, you'd say it shouldn't have done. I think the three hundred SLR Mercedes would have done had it not been for the terrible accident. Uh, and then really, what I think uh, helps it is the is the fifty six and fifty seven wins. So both. 56, the factory is still around, but lose two cars early on in a crash, and the third car has a problem as well. And it's an Acura cost car um, that that comes through to win. And I would suggest, with all due respect to Ninian Sanderson and Ron Flockhart, that um, they were not as good as the drivers in the Aston Martin they were racing against Sterling Moss and Peter Collins. So that's a car that wins that race. And then in 57, it's got to be the D-Type's finest down. You could argue it's probably one of Jaguar's greatest motorsport moments. So it's a one, two, three, four, six result with the D-Type. Uh, 3.8-litre car. Uh, so that's the that's the engine that ends, ends up in the E-Type and the Mark II Jag and all the rest of it. Uh, that's first in 3.4 cars, fill out the rest of, you know, most of the rest of the top six. And there's a French-entered car, a Belgian-entered car, and a, a British privateer as well. So it was a great work car. It was a great privateer car. It did its job. Uh, and really, the only thing that stopped it was the move to three litres. The three-litre version of the XK engine uh, just didn't work as well. I mean, actually, they still kind of featured near the front, but I think that it was no longer a front-running, front-line car from that moment on. So I think the reason I put it so high and ahead of the 917, the 917, I think, is a great sports car, great car. The D-Type is a great Le Mans car. And I thought in the context of this list, that had to count for something. Fair arguments. And the other thing in, in the D-Type's favour is it's just a thing of beauty, isn't it? It is, And yeah. as you say, it's iconic. It's almost, it, it, it just typifies, doesn't it? It just it just shouts Le Mans at you for some reason. Yeah, and, and actually it's got better in historic, well, it depends obviously where they slice the years off. But speaking to Gary Pearson when we did a Jaguar special a couple of years ago, he was saying obviously the, you know, it, it, it works on smooth circuits. It doesn't like bumps because of the suspension layout it's got. 
Um, and of course, most modern circuits are much smoother than they used to be. Uh, and it's got great brakes compared to, you know, d- again, disc brakes, Jaguar pushing that forward. So it remains a, a, a mighty piece of kit, even against slightly later slightly later cars. And although the XK engine was a great engine in period, it also has been, inc- it was very tunable. So they even now they're still finding more power out of it. I mean, you only have to go to Goodwood Revival and look at the lightweight E-types against the Cobras and go, how is an E-type going past a Cobra in a straight line? Let's, let's, let's not go. I don't <laughs> think we should happened. go there, Kev. Yeah, we probably shouldn't. <laughs> to be fair, that's a four point there, 4.2 cars. But um, uh, yeah, so a, a great Le Mans car. If it was a sports car list, it wouldn't be as high. But because it's Le Mans, it's up there. Built for Le Mans. Built to win Le Mans. Built to did, win Le Mans. Did, did the job. job. Yeah, yeah, did it three times. I think it had four decent shots at it, and it did it three times. Yeah. Now, let's get on to our number one then. So, obviously, no debate for this being number one. Well, no, no, I'm... Uh, oh, no, actually, no, you did say that you would... There's an argument to make with the 917. Okay, uh, I will say that the, the car that Kev is just about to mention... And well, you actually have mentioned it, I think, just then, is my favourite. The 956, 962, for me, is not only my favourite, I think it's the greatest Le Mans car of all time. But I think the 917 runs it close. Yeah, so the 917 is my favourite. Yeah. The 917 is the car I've got in my, you know, my, on my, the wall in my lounge. Uh, but I just, I couldn't, a little bit like with the R8, but more fever. The nine five six nine six two. So I mean, seven wins, nothing. You know, that's that's too clear of anything else. And five more than the nine one seven. Okay, well, how many with the nine one seven one? If they hadn't changed the rules, but they did. And the nine the nine six two wins in different rule sets anyway. Um, but also, I think it's more important to the race than the nine one seven because of the number of privateers that were there in eighty four. We had a great Le Mans with the works team not there, and Porsche still won because of the privateer ranks. Um, and let's not forget 83, taking uh, nine of the top ten positions, the top. which led to that famous press ad, uh, <laughs> nobody's perfect. You know, they listed the, the top ten cars. There's a Sauber BMW in there. Nobody's perfect. Superb. Shows the Germans have a sense of humour. Yeah, absolutely. And and even that races, are like, we talked about, you know, you've got to have iconic races. Well, how many how many do you need? So 83, obviously, is that, well, for a start, one, two, three on its debut is pretty good. But who is it against? 83... You've obviously got the lead car with its engine fried as it's crossing the line. Derek Bell with crap brake, brake disc chasing after them. I think he then runs out of fuel on the slowdown lapman and the Andretti family. In, in th- yeah, that's that's pretty cool. A privateer winning eighty four without the works. A privateer winning eighty five with the works, and then effectively there's, there's a, so many strands exactly, to the story, aren't there? A strong rearguard action against the rise of Sauber and, and Jaguar. And it could have won in eighty eight. Should it, have won in eighty eight. I mean, I was a huge. Me. Jag fan at the time. I was just a kid in 88 and I was absolutely sick a little bit like McLaren in Formula 1 absolutely sick of uh, Porsche's winning I want Jaguar to win and Jaguar did win but actually yeah it was well, those Shell cars I've had a passenger ride and won the Shell 9 oh, to the wow. car finished second actually I was here what, it, was, it wasn't as sunny as it was uh, as it is today we actually end up going backwards at Abbey at one point so um, <laughs> uh, uh, so yeah so I just and, and it carries on it's still good enough to finish on the podium in 1990 and that still has a proper Group C car, and it fills out the grid basically for a decade. There's cars, I think the last open-top version, a Kramer K8 version, was there in 98. Yeah, you know, that's just, just ridiculous. Yeah. And, and, a, and a great car for uh, an amateur to look competent in. in those. Yeah. Days. I a mean, drivable car. You get in and go, had a key. Yeah, but if you were a, a, top, a top pro, like a hand stuck on a qualifying lap in it with the boost turned up, proper, proper race car, but also a proper customer car. So... Uh, uh, yeah, 
I, I love the 917, but, the, but for me, the 956, 962 has the right, and so many good liveries as well. It has the right combination of success. Obviously, it was the first effective ground effects uh, sports car in the World Championship. I suppose we'll, we'll forget Chaparral for a moment with its fans and things, but uh, it was the first Porsche monocoque. Uh, just yeah, I, it kind of had to take and first for me. I think. And it, you know, going back to '83, nobody's perfect. It was the bedrock of the Le Mans grid for so long. Is such an important car in the history of sports car racing, which you know, not just Le Mans, because obviously it raced in IMSA as well. But it's important. It has an important place in the history of sports car racing, and therefore a very important place in the history of Le Mans. And what a Porsche called their new LMDH, you know, that's, yeah, it's not the 963. Tips its hat to it, doesn't it? it? So. No, exactly. And are we going to talk about some honourable oh, well, mentions? mentions before I finish up? Uh, well, Gary, go first. I've been doing well, all this. So what, what, because uh, I've got two that I had, I've got, I've got a discarded list um, uh, and there are two that I think feature prominently. So, but you go first. Well, you, you've lumped together a load of Fords. Well, I'm going to lump together a couple of Jaguars, XJR9, XJR12, well, if you don't doubt that they are the same car, well, the oh. chassis that won Daytona in nineteen eight, the Daytona twenty four hours in nineteen eighty eight, was the same chassis that won Le Mans in nineteen ninety. Ergo, they are the same yeah. car. Okay, you know they evolved different bodywork, updates, different engines. That same bit of carbon fiber won Daytona and won Le Mans. Yeah, so, it's called a different thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. so lumping them. Le- Lumping cars together, you know, you know, we've lumped we've lumped the nine five six and nine six two together, which I think is absolutely correct because the nine six two is the long wheelbase uh, version of the nine five six as the regulations change to bring the feet of the driver back behind the front axle line, and it is the same car. But of course, it, racing cars evolve over time, and of course, the nine six two. Uh, evolved more than most because of its longevity and and because it sort of created a cottage industry. People doing their own tubs, doing their own bodywork, you know, Kramer cutting the roof off. Uh, so, but we've lumped them together, but I think we can lump, we could lump the Jaguar together. And if, if we lump the XJR9 and the XJR12 together, does it make this list? I did lump them together in my because I agree that they should they should be. And I thought, well, obviously the eighty eight win is a is a mega victory in one of the great races that and one of the great stories. Lammers yeah, stuck absolutely. in in one gear for for uh, the last hour or so. I don't. There were a few two. I mean, we haven't even talked about the match that won three times because uh, I you know I put that mark that down because of the competition at the time. Because apart from seventy three, I think they had the, all things their own way really. Um, Sounded and, good though, didn't it? Yeah, yeah. Well, so did the V12 Jags. I think. Yeah, um, in but, a different way. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, but I, basically, the, one of the things that really counts against it is just never actually beating a proper Sauber Merck attack. So, '88, they withdraw. It's not Jaguar's fault, but they withdraw because of tire failures in or tire concerns in practice. Sauber does win in '89, and in '90 they boycott. And would a would a XJR twelve have beaten the C eleven? I don't think it would. No, I don't think so. <laughs> no, I, I agree with you. And, it, and let's face it, it couldn't even beat the seven eight seven B Mazda in ninety one, which has got to be one of the most overrated Le Mans cars. Fantastic sound. Well, some of the drivers would suggest a bit too loud. Fantastic livery, and it's gr- it's a great thing. But it did nothing anywhere else, and it was a rules break that really, uh, yeah. And it relied on on some Mercedes. Would you call it bad luck or? Uh, it was their only yeah, thing bad, that they did, wasn't luck. it? Bad luck. 
Yeah. Just Bad decision, perhaps. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, so it's, and, and then Jaguars finished second, third and fourth. So I kind of thought they just, it's not, it doesn't stamp its authority on the race in quite the same way as most of the cars on this list. Um, is it the car that finished off the 962? Not sure that it even is that. Wow. It did in the World Sports Car Championship, definitely. Yeah. So it, it's right. So if this is a top 15, yeah, Martin, we can work on our top 15. <laughs> top 12 and a half <laughs> is in. So the other two, were there any others that you had that you would have thrown into? Well, the Matra was, was one to think about that, you know, because it's three in a row. I'm going to say WSC 95, a Porsche we've talked about uh, that did the back to back in 97. Sorry, ninety six and ninety seven. I I just love that car. Uh, I, I, that was one of the two. That was yeah. one of the two I had on that. But but again, too many Porsches. Maybe too, too many Porsches. Well, and all, yeah, and also, come on, giving too much away here. In the best sports cars, not to race at them on list. This might get a mention in a roundabout <laughs> way there as well. Okay, perhaps we'll leave it at that. But it was on my. It was on the bubble. And Is then there the, anything else you want to put in? The the other one that I that I would have that I actually wrote an entry for and then and then scrapped at the very last minute was the Bentley Speed Six six point six liter straight six uh, that absolutely thrashed everyone at Le Mans in nineteen twenty nine uh, and it and it led a it <laughs> it, it led a one two three four for Bentley uh, but actually probably more significant was the nineteen thirty victory up against the seven point one liter SSK Merc. Uh, which had Rudolf Caraccioli on its driver strength, and it was up against the blower Bentleys, uh, which actually were a private-entered uh, team. I mean, there was a relationship there, but we won't get into that right now. But uh, And Bentley was already in financial trouble, and the, and the Speed 6 did. I think the Speed 6 is kind of the end of that line of of, of the Bentleys that have been successful in, in at Le Mans and Brooklands, and and it is the, that is the car, I think, at the... At, yeah, end of twenty. The first, it's the first great Le Mans car, I would argue. Um, but it, so I had it in eleventh. The nine one nine hybrid knocked it out. The other car I would meant. I'm not going to argue for it to be in there, but the Audi R18, uh, four wins. But it wasn't one car. There were multiple cars in there. R18 just became their type number for an LMP1 car. It would take too long to explain the sort of iterations and evolutions. Yeah. And also, uh, also an enormous black mark for the hid- how hideously ugly the last one was. Right. No sports car should be that ugly. Oh, no. I think the last one is beautiful. Oh. oh. No, the 919 I thought was but the it best. Didn't win, but it didn't win Le Mans, the last one. No. No. Well, there we go. That's our list. That's our first list on our new series. I'm stopping it there, by the way. <laughs> no, we want more. <laughs> uh, our first, uh, we were looking at the cars today, uh, but we will talk races and hard brakes and even non-winning cars in future episodes. Thank you very much for listening to the podcast today. If you want to get in touch, you can do. The email address is podcast at autosports.com. Always love to hear from you and make sure you look out each week for a new episode of this list leading all the way up to uh, the Le Mans centenary race itself. Thank you for listening and we'll catch you on the next one. Sports Social Podcast Network. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. 
In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.